You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. So good to be with you on this Celebration Sunday. My name is Brady Goodwin, and I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Northway. And if you're here um, as a guest celebrating either one of these little ones, or perhaps you're here to support and celebrate the baptism of uh, one of the uh, men and women who will be baptized today. Thank you for being here with us and joining us uh, as we as we uh, celebrate a really beautiful uh, set of occasions. And let me tell you a little bit about why we do this. If you're familiar, if you've been at Northway for some time, you know that before the tornado, before COVID, this was a pretty regular part of our uh, rhythms where we, about four times a year, set aside a Sunday to celebrate the gift of new life, either through birth or adoption, and uh, the celebration of new life through uh, faith in Jesus Christ. And um, we call this Celebration Sunday accordingly because this is a chance to celebrate God's grace in these uh, particular ways. But I want to tell you a little bit about how baptism fits in to that celebration um, because we are we are participating this morning into something that has marked the life of the church from its very inception. So let me, let, me, let me lay the groundwork a little bit for what we're going to experience in just a few minutes. Every time that a church gathers, whether it's this church or another church across this city or across the nation or the world, the church gathers to remember and to proclaim the gospel. They remember, they remember what, what was it that Jesus accomplished that brought about salvation for those who trust in him. And they proclaim, they ask this question, how can we respond with faith that reflects our hope? And throughout the history of the church, two activities have distinguished the church from any other gathering of people as they seek to remember and proclaim the gospel. And this is what is called the marks of the church. If you've never heard that before, I'm gonna explain it to you. But the marks of the church, there's two of them, there's kind of two categories. The first is the right preaching of the word of God. So that when you come and you gather with God's people, are the scriptures taught? Are they preached? Are they handled rightly such that the gospel is communicated and explained and applied and faithfulness to the word of God is demonstrated? But the second of those marks is the right administration of what's called the ordinances of the church. The ordinances of the church are those activities that Jesus gave for the church to celebrate and remember the power of the gospel. And those two ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper. At Northway, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every time we gather. So much so that as a part of our culture, if I go and visit another church, and this isn't to criticize, but if I go and visit another church and they don't celebrate the Lord's Supper in a Sunday gathering, it feels like we've missed something. We've left part of the service out. But we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week as a way to remember and proclaim the gospel. Baptism serves a similar function. We are about to witness two people step into this water to share how Jesus has changed their lives and brought transformation by faith. And as we do, we remember and we proclaim. So what we're gonna do this morning is briefly look at a passage of scripture that helps us to see how baptism is to be understood we're gonna look at a text that's gonna show us three things that if we don't get these three things, we're gonna miss the beauty of baptism. We're gonna miss what it's all about. And it's gonna be something that helps set us up 
for what um, our, our brother and sister will share in just a few moments as they step into these waters. So I wanna invite you to turn to Acts chapter eight as we look at um, what baptism is all about. Acts chapter eight, we're gonna read from verses 26 through 40. And what we're gonna see in this text is three really important things. The first is this, is that baptism is about belief in the gospel. If we want a real quick definition of what baptism is about, we could just say it's about belief in the gospel. But we also have to know that the gospel is something very specific. Sometimes we use this term and we don't really know what we mean. The gospel is the good news about Jesus. And then the third thing we're gonna see is that this good news is for everybody. So baptism is about belief in the gospel. The gospel is the good news about Jesus. And this good news is for everybody. So if you'll look with me um, at Acts chapter eight, we're gonna read verses 26 through 40. And then we're gonna jump into talking about how baptism is about belief in the gospel. Acts chapter eight, verses 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I? unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word. A little bit of context for this text so we understand where this, we kind of jumped into the middle of a narrative, didn't we? You go, I don't know who Philip is. I don't know who the eunuch is. The book of Acts records the spread of the gospel following the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. In the first six chapters of the book, what we see is um, the way in which people began to grapple 
with all that was happening because Jesus went back to God the Father and what he told his disciples before he ascended is that the Holy Spirit is gonna come upon you. He's gonna give you power and you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then on a, on a very particular day, all of the disciples of Jesus were sitting up in a room and the Holy Spirit came. And when the Holy Spirit came, everything changed. It isn't long after that, that Peter's preaching to thousands in Jerusalem. And as he preaches Christ, they are cut to the heart. And they say, what do we do? And he says, repent and believe every one of you for the forgiveness of sins and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter and John, they start to get in trouble for preaching the gospel. People start to do stupid things like lying and denying the Holy Spirit. And God deals with that. If you're familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter six, there start to be practical needs that have to be addressed. And so they appoint seven men full of the Holy Spirit to, to help meet the needs of the church. Philip was one of those men. And Philip, on a very interesting circumstance, finds himself in Samaria preaching the gospel. Acts chapter seven, one of the other seven, Stephen stands up and he denounces the Jewish rebellion against God and he's killed for it. And when he's killed, Acts chapter eight says that all of the believers in Jerusalem were scattered. But here's what happens is that the gospel went with them. So Philip finds himself in Samaria and he preaches the gospel to those who would have been seen as half-breeds or religious syncretists. You may have heard that term Samaritan. You've heard of Samaria and what those folks were, were folks who had come from the Northern kingdom of Israel, but who had been carried away into exile. But when they were brought back uh, after the Babylonian captivity or the Assyrian captivity, they interbred, they married people from outside of the nation of Israel. They had children who were not of the nation. They had differing beliefs that um, led them to, to not be seen as part of the nation. But here's Philip preaching the gospel to them. This is something that wouldn't have happened before Jesus and could have only happened after. But Philip preaches the gospel and they believe. And then he finds himself led by the spirit to go down to this road in Gaza. But what I want you to see as we look at this passage that follows the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem and starting to see it move out to the known world is that there is a relationship. And the relationship is between proclamation and faith. This account that we've just read in Acts 8, 26 through 40 follows a pattern that's established. Proclamation followed by a response of faith. We already talked about Acts chapter two. When Peter preaches the gospel, the Jews respond and he says, repent and believe and be baptized. Philip in Acts eight, as we've mentioned, preaches the gospel in Samaria and they believed and they were baptized. After this, we're gonna see in Acts chapter 10 that the Gentile Cornelius and his family hear the gospel through the proclamation of Peter. They believe and they are baptized. In Acts 16, Paul finds himself in the Greek city of Philippi and he preaches the gospel to a woman from modern day Turkey named Lydia. Her and her household, believe, she and her household believe and they're baptized. Acts 18, Paul goes farther south to the city of Corinth and he begins preaching the gospel and they believed and many of them were baptized. And later on in the book of Galatians, Paul will say in Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
And in just a few minutes, we're going to see a man and a woman step into this water and tell you about what Jesus has done. And so it helps us to understand that this first idea, baptism is about belief in the gospel. Baptism always represents the response a person makes in hearing the proclamation of the gospel. It leads us to be able to define baptism as this, an outward declaration of an inner transformation. Baptism is about belief in the gospel because it represents an outward declaration of inner transformation that has come through faith in Christ. One writer has said it in this way, those who evidence saving faith should be baptized. And those who have been baptized give expression to saving faith. So the first thing we've got to be able to see as we prepare to hear these testimonies is baptism is about belief in the gospel. But what is this gospel? What are we talking about when we say this? The second thing we have to know is the gospel is the good news about Jesus. Look with me again at the text. We see that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from the book of Isaiah. This in and of itself is somewhat unusual. He had a copy of the scroll. He's reading it. He's reading it aloud, which if uh, I, I love that. That's how people read in the old days is that they read aloud. Nobody read silently. Could you imagine that? You're sitting at the coffee shop. You're reading the book that you're reading out loud to yourself. I still kind of do it because if I have a mask on, nobody can tell. But he's reading out loud. He's reading from the book of Isaiah. And the Spirit of God comes to Philip and tells him, go over to that guy's chariot. And he goes over there and he says, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand this? And the Ethiopian eunuch replies, how, how can I, unless I have someone to guide me, to teach me what it means? The Ethiopian was reading from Isaiah 53 which is a fairly well-known passage that speaks of a servant who would come and who would suffer for his people. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, reveals that he's reading verses seven and eight from chapter 53, which has to do with the suffering that this servant would experience. But because the Ethiopian eunuch, who obviously would have been familiar, having come from Jerusalem with some of the expectations for the Messiah, he wasn't looking for a suffering servant. He was looking for a mighty king, who was going to come and bring about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel and all of its political glory. He didn't realize that Isaiah is talking about a redeemer who would suffer. And so he didn't know that it was about Jesus that he spoke when he wrote what he did in, in chapter 53. So Philip, with this text, he starts to explain this good news about Jesus and how Jesus fulfills not only this scripture, but is the centerpiece to the entire narrative of the Bible, of how God created the world and everything in it, of how he created men and women in his image to reflect his glory to the wider world, but that his image bearers turned away from the riches of his love and they sinned against God as they sought to be their own gods instead of submitting to his rule. And that because of their rebellion, death, destruction and alienation from God now were inescapable part of life on the earth. But that even from the very beginning, God had a plan to bring about restoration and redemption. A plan that indeed centered on a nation and a king who would come not as human rulers do with pomp and arrogance and folly, but in wisdom and humility and gentleness and love 
one who would become like those that he came to save, but that being rejected by the very nation of his birth would nonetheless, out of that love, bear the penalty for their sin, that he would die the death of a criminal so that not only they, but all nations across the world could be saved. And that overpowering death and being raised by God to destroy the one who has the power of death, this redeemer would now offer to deliver everyone who through the fear of death would find themselves drifting in desperation and desolation apart from God. Philip told the eunuch how Jesus willingly died in the place of sinners like you and me so that he could bring us back to God where we always belonged so that we could receive the promise of God's love, a love that can never be exhausted and an inheritance of life with him which can never be tarnished. Scripture teaches that Jesus will one day come back and that when he does, he's going to vanquish once and for all the ultimate enemy that we all face, death, and he's going to restore everything to a glory that surpasses even that which existed when the world was without sin in the beginning. And that in response to such a glorious display of love, God calls people everywhere to repent, which means to turn away from the false gods and false places of refuge that we all have found ourselves and instead to believe upon Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what he will do. God's response is to save us, to take this old dead heart and to make it alive, to take our sin and our shame and to replace it with righteousness and peace, to bring us in from the place of loneliness and isolation and alienation, and to give us a home and a family and a new name, God's sons and God's daughters. It is this good news that Philip proclaimed to the Ethiopian, and this good news which the Ethiopian believed that led to his baptism, and it's the good news that the brother and sister who will stand in these waters in a few moments have believed and will now proclaim to you. It's the good news that you also are called to believe. I'm aware that in a gathering like this, some of you are here to help celebrate and support someone that you love, but you yourself would not identify in this way. You would say, I don't believe that. That's great for them, but it's just not something I can accept. But what this passage would compel us towards. And what I would want you to hear from me as well is that we are called to believe upon the Lord Jesus and so receive forgiveness and salvation and restoration. And so we've seen that baptism is about belief in the gospel, but that the gospel is the good news about Jesus. And this brings us to the last thing. This good news is for everybody. There's a really interesting thing that I want us to see in this text, which is just who it is that receives this hope in Acts chapter eight. We've talked about how in Acts one through six, the gospel begins in Jerusalem and starts to get spread throughout the rest of the nation of Israel, but that it's not until Acts seven and Acts eight, when the believers are persecuted and begin to scatter, that we see the gospel going out first to Judea, then to Samaria, and now to what would be known as the ends of the earth. Ethiopia in this time represented 
what would today be seen as modern-day Egypt and Sudan. Not the nation of Ethiopia as we know it, but uh, in the Nile River Valley. This Ethiopian eunuch then was the first person to hear and to believe the gospel from Africa. The Ethiopian was a black African and his homeland would have been seen as the ends of the earth by anyone in Jerusalem. But not only was he not of the same race and ethnicity of Philip as a Mediterranean Jew, the Ethiopian was also a eunuch. Anybody know what that means? It's not a very comfortable term, but a eunuch in this time was a man who had been castrated. Okay? Let me tell you why that's significant. This man was an assistant of noble position in the administration of the Ethiopian queen, but the price that he had to pay to be in that position while not being himself a member of the royal family was to subject himself to castration. Why is that significant? Seems like a weird detail. Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 would prohibit such a person from being able to enter into the temple courts and to worship among the gathered assembly of the people of Israel. And so the eunuch goes to Jerusalem to worship, but he goes to worship as an outsider. He wouldn't have been able to join in with the celebration of the people, but he would only have been able to look from outside, but his heart was fervent with faith. And it is to this person that Philip is led by the Spirit to share the hope of Jesus. The Spirit didn't make a distinction. He didn't make a distinction regarding either his race or his condition, but tells Philip at first, go down to the road at Gaza. He doesn't even tell him who he's going to see. When he gets over there, he says, go to that chariot so you can hear what this man is reading. When Philip gets there, so bold and trusting is he, he hears the familiar words of Isaiah, he jumps in the chariot and he begins to tell him about Jesus. And so ready is this man to hear and believe the gospel that he accepts it at once as truth. And Philip, fresh off of his ministry to the Samaritans, which is a very similar kind of circumstance, Philip went to Samaria and so unusual was their conversion that the apostles sent Peter and John to go down and investigate and to make sure everything was cool. And when they got there, they realized these men and women have believed the gospel. And even though we would have once seen them as half-breeds, they're a part of the family now. Philip is now preaching this same gospel to someone who would not have had the hope of inclusion apart from the grace of God. And so he goes and preaches the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. And as a result of his faith, he baptizes his brother in Christ, despite the precedent that to that point said that the gospel is for the Jews. It's not until Acts 10 just a, a little bit further in the narrative that God appears to Peter and says, go to the Gentiles. Cornelius is waiting for you. He's waiting to hear what you have to say. And it just has to remind us of what we mentioned earlier that Jesus said just before he ascended. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what that ought to show to each one of us this morning is that the gospel is for everybody. The gospel's for you and for me. And so maybe you're here and you are visiting to celebrate someone you love as a sign of support, but you have for some reason believed the gospel to be for somebody else. Maybe it's your sin and shame. How many times have you said in your heart, I know the gospel saves those people, but I just don't think it's for me. 
Maybe your family of origin, your nationality, your ethnicity, your race. Those are things that in your mind have kept you from being a part of the people of God because you have seen yourself as an outsider. Hear from the word of God that the gospel is for you, regardless of condition, regardless of circumstance. What we have to be able to see is that this good news is for every man and woman because God intends for us to see the beauty of his grace in Jesus Christ. And so baptism is about belief in the gospel. The gospel is about the good news of Jesus, but this good news is for everybody. And so here's what we're gonna do. We have two folks who are gonna step into these waters in just a minute. I'm gonna pray as they prepare to do that, but let me give you a little bit of uh, introduction, okay? Some of you guys have been a part of Northway or the Village Dallas before that, and you recognize and you remember celebration service. It's not a tennis clap, it's not a golf clap, praise the Lord. It's a rowdy celebration of the new life that has come in Jesus Christ. And so if you share that life with this brother and sister that are stepping into these waters, you need to celebrate. You got it? Okay, thank you. Not yet. I've already, I was baptized a long time ago. It's a time to rejoice. I remember the first time I ever came to a celebration service at the Village Church in Highland Village, which is our sister church from which we were formerly apart for many years. And people were losing it. And I just went, what just happened? Did somebody propose? Like, it was uncharacteristic, but what it became was something very normal and expected and cherished. And so let's celebrate and rejoice. They're gonna stand in the water, which if you've done, it's hard. It's hard to get in front of a few hundred people and share your story and talk about how you couldn't save yourself. You, left to your own devices, was making a mess of your life again and again, but that because of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, you have found new life in him. That's hard to get up and share, especially if you're like me and you just go, ooh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And so celebrate the courage that these men and women are demonstrating as they get up and share, your, share their stories with you. So let me pray for us, and then these folks are going to come down, and we're going to celebrate God's grace as they step into the waters of baptism. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible gift that it is to celebrate the baptism of our brother and sister this morning. We pray that you would give them courage to speak of the hope of Jesus that you would help them if they feel any kind of anxiety in their heart right now, that you would calm their hearts so that they can speak of your love. Would you help us to be strengthened as we hear them remember and proclaim the gospel? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.